Thank you for choosing the podcast of East Haven Baptist Church in Brookhaven, Mississippi. For more information on the ministries of East Haven and to access videos and sermon notes from our services, visit www.easthaven.net. Let me simply begin by saying uh, what a joy it is to be back in East Haven. It has been a long time. I've been here many of times. You have fed me well through the years, and uh, God has allowed me to establish some really forever friendships. Some of the guys that really I consider some of my best friends over the years are members here, and if I'm counting correctly, I've had the opportunity to fellowship with Pastor Dustin on three occasions that I remember. We may have met before then. But uh, I love your pastor and his kindness. And then tonight, got to meet his wife, Rebecca. And now I realize that he really is as smart as he seems. And so, uh, what a joy uh, to be, be with you. And thank you for hosting us and giving us an opportunity to come and, um, and minister. You know, something's always said, so I, I keep it right here. And I've got it in my phone. And I'm going to speak to something. Uh, did you know the latest research shows that a leader's greatest years of service are 60 to 70 years of age? Number two, greatest years of service in a leader's life, and this is the USA, is 70 to 80. Number three, 50 to 60. You younger whippersnappers, hang in there. You'll catch up with us one day. Uh, the average pope, 76 years old. The average leader of a national company in America is 63. The average age of a megachurch pastor in the United States is 71. Uh, most people are quitting when they're entering their best years. Just thought I'd throw that out there uh, for what it's, what it's worth. Uh, if you were to ask me... <clears throat> And I, I was sitting here thinking about it. If when, when someone just says, hey, I, I want to pray for you, Pastor Johnny. I've written you in my journal or whatever. What can I pray? Always I start at the top by saying, you just pray that God give me wisdom. Uh, really to be able to discern and make proper decisions, live in such a way that would honor and bring glory to Christ. You know that God spoke to Solomon and asked him, what one thing would you desire of me? And he said that you'd give me wisdom, listen to this language, to lead this great people. And uh, boy, the way we uh, observe what God has entrusted to us has a lot to say about how wise uh, we are. What a privilege and responsibility God has given us to lead. The Lord turned around and said, you know, you could have asked great wealth and just named all these things you could have asked. He said, but I'm going to give you wisdom, and as a result of living a wise life, all the other things will become yours as well. I have for 30 years, with few exceptions, every morning I read a proverb. Read a chapter of Proverbs. This last month was 29 days, so on the 29th day, I read 30 and 31. So I get through it, and every 150 days, I read through the Psalms. I do chronological Bible studies. I do devotions. But I love reading uh, the Psalms. Psalms is the most reflective material in the Bible. And then I read Proverbs because I don't know of anything that I need greater than wisdom. And so I want you to just listen to this, and then we're going to dive in on a New Testament text. In Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 13, Happy is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. For her proceeds are better than the profits of silver and her gain than fine gold. She is more precious than rubies and all the things you may desire cannot compare with her. Length of days is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her, and happy are all who retain 
her, speaking of wisdom. And you women, especially if you know the book of Proverbs, you ought to celebrate the fact that he used a feminine name to talk about wisdom because it is a very, very masculine book, especially in Proverbs. Now, listen to this. In Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 7, wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom in all you're getting. Get understanding. Exalt her and she'll promote you. She will bring you honor when you embrace her. She will place on your head an ornament of grace, a crown of glory. She will deliver to you. So, David, let me simply begin by saying that Janet and I are here because we love you and Selena and your precious family. Um, I believe the most important word in the Christian vocabulary is lordship. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, nothing matters more than what you've done with Jesus. So I just put it up there at the top, lordship. Second most important word, I believe in the human vocabulary, is the word relationship. When I do a wedding ceremony, I normally say something like this. Today you're making second greatest decision in your life, and that is who you're going to spend your life with. Janet and I in November celebrated 51 years of marriage. She was 17, 17 days when we got married. Now, if you're here and you've got a teenage daughter with you, I just offended you, and you're saying, my daughter respects you, she's wanting to get married, and she's too young. I agree. So I want you to hear the rest of what I've got to say. When I say she was 17, you need to remember that was back in the Bible days, all right? That would be equivalent in modern time, 33, 34 years old, somewhere in there. So I just reeled mom and dad back in, and uh, we, we got there. So it's been wonderful years. I've just got to share this while she's here. But um, we were just having one of those moments one day, and, and I just told her, I said, you know, not only have you been mine over five decades, but just think, because of Jesus, we'll be together forever. And I just thought it was a good moment. And she responded, well, you know, we won't be married in heaven. <laughs> and, and I thought, boy, she knocked the wind out. Matter of fact, God gives us women so we can be humble. Um, and so I thought, and I've been known to be a little witty myself, and I just simply responded, no, we won't be married in heaven, but you can't date anybody else. You know? <laughs> so she's mine, all mine. And that's deep theological truth, by the way. Uh, I, I love the book of James. I had the opportunity to do a discipleship book. I uh, took the words of D.L. Moody and entitled it Shoe Leather Christianity. And then the largest, I think it's the largest commentary on Bible preaching I've ever done is in the book of James. So it's my favorite book. I'll use some words in this message that will define why I love the book of James. You know this, that he's the half-brother of Jesus. You know that he lived in the home with the Son of God, but he did not get converted until after the resurrection. Uh, so that, that is a good word because periodically somebody says, I'll guarantee you one thing. If he was attending that church, he'd, he'd get saved. Not necessarily. If you can live in the home with Jesus and not know God, you can go to church and hear about him and certainly not know him. Uh, he went down in history, and tradition has it that his nickname was Camel Knees, to which my thoughts are, when he found out who his brother was, uh, he couldn't quit talking to him. And he had a posture uh, that the Heavenly Father deserved in him being on his knees. It's been said that James 3, verse 17, is the greatest biblical commentary on the subject of wisdom. And uh, I'm excited, David, for you and Selena. Uh, David's got a lot of passion. He loves pastors. He, he'll really stay pastoring. Periodically, somebody says to me, I transitioned. I never retired, but that's the word you use when you get our age and you make a change. But 
I didn't retire at Woodstock. I simply, Janet and I prayed for years for the time to transition to train pastors for the rest of our life and then to lead evangelism. But in that transition, uh, God gave me, continue to give me a passion. And people ask me every now and then, so how does it feel now to no longer be a pastor? So let me go ahead and give you the answer for that. Is pastoring a calling or a function? Uh, Because if you get sick for a while, you're not a pastor for a while. No, and God's callings are without repentance. I will be a pastor until the day I die. And and I'm still hadn't figured out where they've got it that we're going to sing so much up there and not preach. But uh, I've got sermons to finish. And so I'm thinking... So, so let, me, let me do this, David. Let me talk to you and Salida and your family and, and so many. This is a marvelous Friday night attendance for any occasion. So thank you for honoring this dear family by being here. But in James chapter 3, verse 17 is going to define it. And then he's just going to put sort of a, 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 a rose on top to just top it all off with. There's a contrast in verses 15 Through 17 on the difference. Listen to this. Wisdom that's from above and wisdom that's not from above. There's words that describes a wisdom, listen to this, that's not of God. For instance, a person can be in church and not be filled with the Spirit of God and may just say, well, I'll tell you, I've been around the block a few times and I've done this and I've done that. And so I think I can speak into that. But that doesn't mean, are you listening? That doesn't mean that it came from heaven. What's the difference? So listen carefully to this. When the Bible defines in verse 15 of James chapter 3, what wisdom that is not from heaven is, and he uses the same word, wisdom that is not from heaven. He says it's earthly, it's sensual. And it's demonic. So let's put it in the language that all of us have been taught. It's of the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. That's why our churches are in trouble. But there's a wisdom from above that the Bible speaks of. And it uses a word that is not part of its definition. It's a word that is literally saying this. Until... This is a reality in your life. Wisdom cannot be an attainment for your soul. One word, only one word. So look at James chapter 3 and verse 17. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure. So he's made a statement. That's the definitive statement, and we'll deal with it. And then, notice what word he uses next. Then, and by the way, let me say it emphatically. Then and only then will these seven principles be an attainment that God gives us a spiritual gift in your life. And he says this, then, seven words. Peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruit, without partiality and without Hypocrisy, And then he gives this statement. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in the seed, in, in peace, by those who make peace. So the book of James really causes me to love the book of Proverbs even more. So James makes it clear that wisdom from above cannot be known apart from a saving relationship with Jesus Christ who is himself, 1 Corinthians 1.30, the power of God and the wisdom of God. James serves not only as a practical theologian, but also he's a master of contradicting principles. So the book of James is loaded with conjunctions. There's a wisdom that's not from above, but wisdom from above. So in these two verses, he gives us the most comprehensive commentary on wisdom. So let me give you two major statements and then hang a few words on them 
as to what's needed in David's life as a D-O-M. And they recently, I think you used A-M-D. I thought that, that must just be from Mississippi. And then there's the, their A-M-S-S. And uh, I never have liked using that terminology, but uh, I use it a lot. But director of missions, uh, uh, associational missionary director, strategist, or whatever. And then for every pastor and staff member, you need wisdom from above. So he says, but wisdom that is from above. So remember, it's from above. It's not an attainment of a man. It's a gift of God. It's not acquired, but applied. So this wisdom is contrasted, as already showed you in verse 15, to that which does not descend from above. So he says it is first pure. In other words, being followed by then leads us to take pure to be a motive for godly wisdom rather than a characteristic, as James lists seven. So the motivation for this wisdom from above is motivated by purity. Blessed are the pure in heart, present tense. They shall see God. Right now, God will show himself strong. The Bible says God shares his secrets with those who are upright. So so God will let you in on some things. Did you know? Psalms 119, longest chapter in the Bible, 176 verses. There are 22 eight-verse couplets. Each of those eight-verse couplets start with the next letter of the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. He's walking through the alphabet, magnifying the Word of God, and the theme is how to have a new beginning, a new beginning. And yet in there, he says that the Word of God, listen to this, has made him wiser than his teachers. Uh, The Bible says it's made him wiser than his enemies. God has given him wisdom through the word. So it is pure in the sense of being undefiled, morally pure. I, I wrote two statements that are defined by the word purity. Spiritual integrity and moral sincerity. So this purity comes from one who's been cleansed by the blood of Jesus, who is himself pure. The very same word that is used in 1 John 3, 3 has been received as Christ's purity and as a result is leading to a morally pure life. And so this person's heart is pure in that it's an unmixed devotion to God. It carries the idea of being pure in one's focus concentrating on serving him. It involves moral purity before God and devotional purity and one's focus on God. Ken Hughes is one of my favorite authors. And listen to what he says about wisdom. Wisdom being pure is the key to all the qualities of wisdom to follow. It's the overarching attribute. It's the authenticity and intensity of one's purity, and it determines the outworking of the other qualities of wisdom. And so this principle teaches that all who possess it are to make perfect purity in one's moral and devotional life a primary goal. Here's a good statement. Nobody ever reaches perfection, but that's our goal. And so if you don't have that as a goal, your mindset becomes this. Nobody's perfect, so you excuse yourself for a fallacy in your life that the Bible condemns. So even though we stumble, we're to get up and continue to go for it. The principle and teaching of Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, when he says, I've not yet apprehended that for which I was apprehended, but I'm pursuing it. What is he talking about? Christ's likeness. Will he get there fully in this life? No. But is that his goal? He's charging down the track, and that is where he's headed. And so pure speaks of clean and innocent. It would be holy. It speaks of our sanctification. Um, I did a study one summer. The whole summer, I just studied one word, sanctification. Listen to sermons, read books, and when it was all said and done, here's how I define sanctification. 
Jesus overcoming me. So if he can overcome me, it's amazing what he can do through me. So let me move to a second thought and then define these words quickly and briefly. Let me talk to you about the features of wisdom. What, what are the features? What are the characteristics of wisdom? Peaceable. It means peace-loving. Uh, external features that flow from its pure character. It, it promotes peace. It's a, it's a right relationship between man and God. Wait a minute. And man and man. I have a vertical relationship that I want to be peaceful and I have a horizontal relationship that because of that vertical relationship, I want to be right with others. It comes from the root at one to be at peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. So this person does not um, perpetrate conflict by their selfishness, but they produce peace by humility, and that is what Philippians 2, 1 through 4 teaches when it talks about, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. So James is not commending a peace that depends on walking away from conflict. Rather, he's commending a peaceful spirit resting in your work and in your battle. So at times, you make waves because of biblical principles that are at stake but ordinarily they refrain from turbulence and rejoicing in making peace if you're faithful to teach the truth it'll cause some troublesome times with some people uh, Ephesians 4 3 puts it this way endeavoring to keep the unity of the peace in the, bond, in the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Romans 14, 19. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which we may edify one another. Uh, Romans 12, 18. If it's possible, as much as depends on you, live peacefully with all men. And, and then he moves to a second word, and it's the word gentle. It means considerate. It means forbearing. It's yielding to another. It doesn't insist on their own rights. Matthew Henry calls it sweet reasonableness. It's referred to as the most, this is interesting, it's referred to as the most untranslatable word in the list. It means you're not harsh or critical. I, I like what Jerry Vine says. The Christian never has the luxury of being unkind. I've always been taught that a real friend is the person who walks in when everyone else walks out. Now, I want to ask you a question. Do you, do you honest before God know how hard that is? Uh, we live in a world of social media. It's extremely toxic right now. Uh, I post every day. If you want to follow me, I post the word of God and reflective thoughts. If you were to follow me, you'd see my name tagged a lot where I am called out every day on something. Hey, Johnny Hunt, speak to this. And say, what do you do with that? Let it die for lack of support. I'm going to do it. I just don't, I don't respond to it. I could respond to it. I have responded to it, but I deleted it. But I felt better after I said it and thought about it. You know, I've, I've often taught preachers that you, know, you can't make it if you don't have a sense of humor. So I, I humor myself with some people. Somebody catches me after church and says, I'll tell you, if, if I was pastor, here's what I would do. I have a good time with that. <laughs> Normally they'll say something like this. What are you smiling about? If I told them, I'd be fired. But anyway, <laughs> I don't. So it's uh, one that can submit. Listen to this. Gentle means one that can submit to dishonor and abuse and mistreatment and persecution. But still stay pure. Say, you believe that? Well, let Jesus speak. Matthew 5.10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So you're not looking for that, but you understand it when it comes. But you care enough that as a practical theologian, you want to lead right. It describes the kind of person who, though wronged and possessing the right not to bend, nevertheless foregoes their rights. So the man or woman with this quality makes allowances for the weaknesses and ignorance of others and takes the kindest perspective whenever possible. Wow. You know, when somebody's meant a lot to me, just a teaching moment here, uh, and everybody in the world's after them, I've been known to go on social media and say, uh, you know, I thank God for so-and-so, and and, uh, they were the first person in my Christian journey after I pastored to encourage me and really help me in my walk. And then um, I am blasted for saying something. And Adrian Rogers, before he died, said this, you will never have to ask God to forgive you for being kind. You can be criticized in this culture for being kind. And I just want you to know, it is the characteristic and feature of wisdom. If I have the wisdom of God from heaven that God gave me as a gift, I am going to live in peaceable relationships and I'm going to be kind. And and listen to these words, willing to yield. That means easily to be entreated. Um, Tell you how you can become a cynic. Somebody can offend you and you'll say this, well, I ain't getting close to anybody else. That'll never happen again. And so you, you dig your heels in and say you're never going to get close to anybody because you get hurt. And so you become a cynic. I, uh, I, I do uh, several extremely large senior adult conferences a year. And I've been doing a devotional book for 13 years with Thomas Nelson. And the senior adults love them. And so uh, I'm not quitting yet. Turn it off. But anyway, uh, <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. I, uh, I was at an African-American church one time, and the preacher was preaching, and the phone went off, and I'm just cutting up, so it don't bother me. But uh, the preacher said, uh, if that ain't Jesus, turn it off. And I thought, that is cool. <laughs> so one morning, I was at Woodstock on a Sunday morning, and a phone went off. And so I thought I would, and I said, if that's not Jesus, turn it off. And the person got up walking out, talking. I said, it's Jesus. You know, so uh, it is. I have ADD, and so anything that comes in, I, I got a story, you know, to, to go with it. So, so these seniors are coming, and, and I want you to just hear this briefly. person comes in and says, you know, uh, Pastor Johnny, I'd like for you to sign my book, so I'm signing it. And they'll say, pray, pray for me. My grandson has not been to see me in three years. And then they'll start talking. And I'm not being ugly, but they'll be, real negative. I mean, just every word. They're so cynical. And while I'm writing, here's what I'm thinking. If I was your grandson, I wouldn't come see either. I mean, it's just, um, that, that's what it means. You're not easily entreated. Um, it means to be submissive. L- listen to this. It means, listen to this translation. It's a willingness to submit to persuasion or to be open to reason. There's some people you can't reason with. I mean, you just really can't. It, it means teachable. Matter of fact, I've trained about 53 pastors over 25 years that spent two at a time. A couple of years they were international. I had to take them when they could get their visas. And so I trained three on two different years. And so um, when it was all over with, I was being interviewed one day and I didn't know the questions. And they just said, Pastor Johnny, what do you think is the greatest characteristic in a young man's life? that you've mentored in all these years. And I said this word, and it's been a few years since I did the interview, and I stick with it. Teachable. Um, David, I just say it for what it's worth. 
as long as I pastored for 43 years. Except when I was in three morning service and an evening service, I couldn't go. I went to Sunday school every Sunday. I just I had 85% of my Sunday morning worship attendance attending Bible study. But I just felt, how can I promote that that's what my people need? And I wanted to be connected to a class so I could go soul winning with them. Uh, that's where Janet and I did our extra giving to support the budgets of that Sunday school class. I wanted to remain teachable. It means to have an open spirit. It's uh, willing to learn, ready to cooperate. In other words, I haven't, haven't learned it all. Uh, I want to not only grow as long as I'm living, and you'll never catch me without reading a book and telling you what my next book is. Never. You'll never catch me in that. My whole life in ministry has been. And by the way, it's a discipline. I don't do it because I love it. I do it because I need it. So it's a discipline. If all you ever do is what you love to do, you will never be as good as you could have been. So it's the disciplines in our life. Uh, number four, that full of mercy. Uh, by the way, every one of these fit into the Beatitudes. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Now, in my theology, let me tell you what I believe. I believe the greatest preaching in the Bible is Jesus preaching the Beatitudes. I don't believe there's any better preaching than what Jesus had to say in chapter 5 and chapter 6. The similitudes and the Beatitudes of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the believer who's full of mercy evidences his saving faith and transformed life, not only by forgiving those who have wronged him, but by reaching out to help them in whatever way they're needed. It's being like the Good Samaritan, uh, being concerned and compassionate for anyone who is suffering or who needs any kind of support. I was listening to David when he was articulating uh, so wonderfully earlier and he was just saying, man, I want to take you on a mission trip. Man, we want to do this together, but we can touch this together. And, and it was ministries of compassion, ministries of mercy. So it's really compassion and action. It, it doesn't just break your heart. It puts you to work in helping. I do something. So we want to be rich in mercy because God was rich in mercy to us. Number five, quickly, full of good fruit. In other words, good deeds, uh, not say, but show. Uh, good actions. Um, uh, when you think, uh, one, one of my, I have seven life goals um, that God gave me in 2010 uh, after I uh, made it through cancer. And so I said, God, let me live. I want to do these seven things for the rest of my life. And I'll just give you one of them. I want to touch poverty. Here's one of the greatest statements I've ever heard about, since we're talking about compassion and being full of mercy. You can be overwhelmed by the needs of the world, but listen to this. What if every Christian would do for one what you wish you could do for all of them? And then you'll find out you can really do more than one. But what if everybody would just choose one uh, and do for them what you wish you could do for all of them? So, so it's really good deeds. It's, it's, this is a good way to say it. It's not just leaves, but fruit. It's not mere words of empty boasting. The word's plural, and it suggests a variety of fruits, good deeds of many kinds. So as fruits are expected and desired of a good tree, uh, so the deeds are expected of wisdom. Um, without partiality uh, means to distinguish, unwavering, without variances, free from vacillation, undivided, wholehearted loyalty in contrast to an inconsistent mouth that blesses and curses, James 3, 9 and 10. Uh, impartial means unwavering conviction, undivided loyalty to the truth. No, no favoritisms. Steady, uh, taking one position uh, in one circumstance or another and in different situations that operates on consistent principle. John Phillips, I, I love to quote men that we've had the privilege to hear in life and uh, ministered with him so many times. What a brilliant man. And now to quote him now that he's gone. Listen to what he said. God in his wisdom 
never allows himself to be swayed by the size of a person's bank book. The color of his skin, from which side of the tracks he comes, or the numbers of letters he puts after his name. Nor should we. And then he says, without hypocrisy, a sincere, a never play acts. What you see is what you get. No mask, uh, no fiend sincerity, no pretense. Uh, Paul, when he spoke of Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, verses 2 through 6, he said, uh, I thank God for your unfeigned faith. That means sincere, real, hypocritical. There's a lot we can't be, but let me tell you what, every Christian can be with the, with the ministry of God's grace. You can be real. That, that's the best thing you can be. It's the easiest person to attempt to be. It's just to be, to be real. So unhypocritical. So when man's wisdom is at work, there is insincerity. When God's wisdom is at work, there is honesty. You know, he lists those seven things, and, and this is a good place just to, to wrap it up. And that is the fruit of wisdom. So it's one thing to see the features but what is the fruit? And um, theologians have a heyday in verse 18 when it says, now the fruit of righteousness is sown. You don't sow fruit. You sow seeds of righteousness. And so theologians take that and think that it's almost a contradiction in terms. And so I want you to listen to how they deal with it. I find it interesting. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Uh, you may say that seed is sown, not fruit. But it's possible that James had in mind the idea of fruit being harvested and then in part becoming seed, which is re-sown in peace, as it were, and produces still more fruit and so on a familiar cycle of growing and reaping. So seeds represent godly wisdom whose fruit is righteousness. So godly wisdom produces a continuing cycle of righteousness which is planted and harvested in a peaceful, harmonious relationship between God and his faithful people and between those people themselves. You know, and I'm, I'm gone now. I walked at Woodstock at the end of 2019. 33 years. Um, people used to ask me, they'd say, you don't think all those people love you, do you? To which I would respond, they're supposed to. <laughs> but but I'm going to tell you the other side of that. I'm supposed to love all of them. And, and I'm just, I'll give a testimony. I mean, check it out. Go there. Um, I don't remember in 33 years ever having a major confrontation. Pastor, be encouraged by this. We never had a negative vote. We built a $100 million campus. We relocated the church. We went from a single staff member. I had 175 staff when I left. That's a miracle of God. Those people voted on all that and paid for all of that and still are. In three months, to be debt-free. To be debt-free now if they take it out of the bank. It's a, it's a miracle of God. It's, um, you know, in the Old Testament, over and over again, the question is posed, where is the God of Elijah? Hey, let me just give you a good word for your new D-O-M-A-M-D. Um, the word was used more than one time tonight, Unity. Or peace. Wouldn't you like to be a part of an association that its greatest days were ahead of it? And that, and that God would do something so glorious that nobody could take credit. We'd have to give credit where credit's due. Here's what I, I wrote in my early days at Woodstock. God is looking for someone that will allow him to be himself in them. 
He don't need any help. Just let him get in us. And make yourself available for him to use you. And let me tell you what I believe about the people in the churches in Lincoln County. They would like for God to do something with them that will outlast them. 90-year-olds were asked, if you could live life over again, what would you do differently? The top three answers. Number one, I'd reflect more. Well, what's reflect? I'd take time to sort of, I mean, what is, look at me. What is God doing in my life right now? If it ended tomorrow, what would my life have accomplished? What did I want my life to accomplish? That's number one. Number two, I'd take greater risk. Some people play it at safe, and when you, when you die, you're going to have a, a big bank account. Show me that anywhere in the Word of God. I'll show you where the Bible says, and let there be no gathering when I return. What are you storing up for while people are perishing? I feel better saying that and getting that out there, but I'm serious. I want to give it so we... I don't risk. I'm going to make another statement. Look around the room. I've got a lot of kin, kinship in this room with my age. Let me tell you what I know about guys our age. I'm talking to one of my friends tonight. I can't believe he said what he said, Janet. He said, uh, you know, now that my kids are out of the house and all, my bank account numbers are really going up. <laughs> and did you know that's the truth under God? And here, I have a confession to make. You're so much poor-mouthing. Let me give you a biblical confession. It's, it was written in 300 A.D. by Augustine. God has been good to me. Follow me on this. He's given me more than I need. But he's shown me others that need it. 300 A.D. How about Martin Luther? I've held many things in my hands. I've lost it all. Everything I've placed in God's hands, I still possess. Oh, the third thing to sing your adults. I wish I'd invested more in that which would outlast me. I want to know that I invested and poured in to somebody younger than me so that when I'm gone, there'll still be somebody out there that's got my fingerprints on their life that will continue on. And then hopefully they'll touch someone and it'll go from generation to generation. So God's wisdom is not only displayed for others, but it's also delivered to others. So we are not to sow the seeds of righteousness, but the fruit of righteousness. God sows the seed of righteousness in our life. And the fruit is what God produces through the seed. And if you're saved tonight, you have a seed that reproduces. Here's a good place to quit. I've got to quit, so I'll give you a good place to quit. The Bible says in 1 John that when you're born again, the way you know you're born again, you have the seed of God in you. Um, Billy Graham said he believes, you don't have to agree with him, but Billy Graham said he believes that probably half of the evangelical church on our rolls has never been born again. Billy Graham. He said there was a day the church was a force for evangelism, but today the church has become a field for evangelism. You see, there's people that have made a decision that have never become a disciple. A decision can't reproduce itself, but a disciple can make disciples. But those who aren't ever producing themselves, they're not what Jesus said in John 12, 24, that a seed that has fallen into the ground, and if it doesn't die, it abides alone. But if it dies, it brings forth more fruit. So when seeds die, God brings fruit. So the reason is the fruit of righteousness is being sown is because Jesus in each of your lives and everyone in this association, all 40 churches, if they're people that are born again in the church, God's placed a seed of righteousness 
And as you're faithful, God will produce the seeds, the fruit of righteousness through your life. David, that's what we're praying for. Pray that God will give you the desires of your heart that are in keeping with the will of God. David will pastor the pastors in this place and, uh, and be a blessing to your church. He and his wife both, they believe God's called them to do it. They've walked away from a great ministry because they believe God's in this and God wants to multiply their ministry. And so, David, I promised to pray for you. I have prayed for you, and I deeply love you. I'm going to ask you and Selena, if you would, come join us here at the front. And as you uh, make your way to the front, um, I'm told that Talmadge Smith is going to come. Come right on, Brother Talmadge. They're going to sit here. And I'm going to ask um, you pastors to begin with. You'll just come and join us. You'll just take a seat, all of you. You pastors or staff members that want to come. And uh, I would encourage uh, some of your wives to come and uh, surround Selena. And we're going to lay hands on them and pray for them. And Talmadge, you just tell us, dear brother, what you want that to look like. Praise your name as creator of all, ruler of heaven and earth. Thank you for providing the way of salvation through Jesus' finished work on the cross. And how we pray tonight as we begin a new chapter in the ministry of Lincoln Baptist Association, bringing in a new director of missions. We pray that your hand will continue to be upon its ministry. And for Brother David and Miss Selena, Lord, just help us to realize that you thought missions up. It was your idea. And may we continue to follow that in getting missions done here through Lincoln Baptist Association. And we lift Brother David to you, Lord. Fill him. Strengthen him physically and spiritually for the task before him. Give him clear vision. Give him a servant heart. Give him listening ears and working hands. Give him a sound mind gentle words, encouraging counsel, and a desire to honor and please you in all that is done.
Lord, we believe that the best is yet to come. And may it be for your glory and for our good. In the very precious and the lovely and the powerful name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Brother Johnny, thank you for that wonderful, wonderful word. Touched each of our hearts. Uh, in just a few minutes, I'm going to ask Dave and Selena to ease out into the foyer here. Uh, we're just going to have a time of reception. Uh, so you can meet and greet uh, Dave and Selena. And uh, so as soon as they get through uh, meeting and greeting now, they'll be out uh, in that foyer area. Uh, thank you for being here. Uh, we're looking forward to what God's going to do. Uh, in Lincoln County Baptist Life uh, through the leadership of David Williams. And thank you all for being here. I'm going to close this with a word of prayer. going to pray through the food, uh, and then we'll be dismissed. And David and Selena will be out front to meet and greet you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come this evening. And Lord, we thank you for the wisdom that we receive from your word that's guided through the spirit that dwells within us. And Lord, through that wisdom, Lord, we can be your hands and your feet. Lord, we can be your mouthpiece. Lord, through you living within us, Lord, we can change the world. And Lord, that's our heartbeat for Lincoln County. Lord, that each and every person that walks through our church doors that we meet in town can know that you are Lord, that you are Savior, and that they can have life and life eternal in you. And Lord, I pray as we as a collective body of churches will shine your light bright in Lincoln County, changing lives each and every day through the power of the gospel that goes out before us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.